The day is getting late. Soon nightfall will come and the cool evening breeze from the Sea of Galilee will replace the blistering heat of the sun. For many in Capernaum, it's a welcome relief at the end of a long day's work. But for this man, nightfall means something entirely different. For even though he's paralyzed and unable to work, begging at the marketplace each day at least gives him the opportunity to interact with others, to watch the activity of others, to be around others. But at the end of each day, that's when it gets really tough. It's torture enough to not be able to move around and work like all the others, but when the darkness falls and the town grows quiet, that's when the loneliness creeps into his room like a panther hunting its prey. Many a night, countless nights, this man lays a wide awake, staring at an unresponsive ceiling, remembering the days before the accident that brought an end to his ability to walk. And now, the dark cloud of depression hovers endlessly over his heart as he continually asks the questions, why, why me? Seclusion is his most common companion and fear seems to forever reign in his heart. And this particular evening is like all the rest. Until there comes a surprising knock on the door. Come in, the paralyzed man says. And in walks his four devoted friends. They've been his only support system for over 20 years. Listen, they say, we've come to take you to Jesus tonight. He's back in town and he's healing everyone of disease. And if he can heal them, then surely he can heal you too. So hold on tight. We're going to not let you miss him again. Let's go. So they arose, they picked him up on his mat, and went to the house where Jesus was teaching. Now, I wrote that little story just to sort of set the tone and the emotion for what's happening right here in Mark chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. If you would, turn there in your Bibles, and as you turn, I'll give you just a little glimpse into uh, this book of Mark. It was written by John Mark. He's the same uh, young man who was on the first missionary journey with Paul and Barnabas. And if you recall, he left that journey early, and so it caused a little dissension between Paul and Barnabas. But this is later on now in his life, and here he is in Rome, having served Paul while he was in prison, before Paul was martyred, and now he's serving Peter, who is also imprisoned by the Emperor Nero, and it's somewhere between 64 and 68 AD. And what John Mark is doing is he's actually transcribing the eyewitness testimony of Peter, before Peter was martyred by Nero. And in the first chapter of Mark, we see that uh, Mark establishes for us that Jesus has uh, created Capernaum as his home base. Capernaum was a little village on the north shore of the Sea of Galilee. In fact, you can go there even today and see this little village. And, uh, and they've uncovered it. And a lot of things that were there when Jesus was walking in this little town is still there. And it's so fun to go there and walk around and see this little town. But this was Jesus' home base for his ministry for the first couple years while he was um, beginning to minister to people in that region. And it, we see in that first chapter that eventually they end up leaving uh, Capernaum for a few days to travel around Galilee, and many people were healed, and there's lots of stuff that happens in Mark chapter 1. But after several days, they come back to Capernaum, and that's where we're going to pick up our story, Mark chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. This is a story of friendship, it's a story of faith, and it's a story of forgiveness. Let's look at verse 1. 
And again, he entered Capernaum after some days. And it was heard that he was in the house. Uh, The first character we encounter in this story is Christ himself. And I entitled this message, Jesus in the House. Because when Jesus is in the house, great things happen. Verse 2, immediately many gathered together so that there was no longer room to receive them, not even near the door. And already in verse 2, we encounter the second characters in the story, the crowd. You know, Mark mentions the crowd often in his gospel. In fact, over 40 times before chapter 10, Mark talks about the crowd, sometimes in a positive light, but most of the time in a negative light. But this crowd here is gathered to hear Jesus teach and to see him heal their loved ones because Jesus always brings with him hope and healing. They know what he's capable of because he healed many people in Capernaum already in chapter 1. So word has spread, and they're excited that he's back in town. In fact, they're in this room. You can't get another single soul in there because it's packed to the walls, but there's excitement in the air. Now, I just have to pause here and, and just ask you to imagine how amazing would it be if we gathered together every week in this room with the same level and excitement and anticipation that this crowd here has. You see, Jesus is right there in their midst. His presence is right there in that house. But I just have to remind you folks, as you have sensed already this morning, the presence of Jesus is in this house as well. And we have the awesome privilege of dwelling in his presence. So rather than coming with some predetermined notion of what church is going to be like for the day or whether you're going to like Jonathan's message or whether you're going to like the music or whether you're going to like the people that you're sitting around, maybe we should just come with an expectancy in our heart like these people did, that Jesus could very well move in our hearts and Jesus could absolutely dwell among us and lives can be changed and people can be saved. Well, the second half of verse 2 says this, and he preached the word to them. Now, the word that Mark uses for the word, word, is an old Greek word called logos. He uses the word logos. And that basically means what Mark's telling us is that he's teaching the full counsel of God. Now, the cool thing about that word logos is it's the same word that John uses in John chapter 1, uh, the, the apostle John, John chapter 1, when he says that in the beginning was the word, he uses that same word. In the beginning was the logos, and the logos was with God, and the logos was God. And then in in verse 14 of that same chapter, John reminds us this. He says, and the word became flesh. The Logos became flesh and dwelt among us. So the whole reason I share that is just to remind you that this same word that Mark uses is Logos. In other words, the word who became flesh is right there in the house teaching them the word of God. It's, it's, he has the authority of being the author of the very book that he's teaching them. So God is teaching them the word of God. How cool is that? I just wanted to share that to you because I think it's awesome. Okay, so let's get to the first point. My first point today is just for you to recognize the impact of friendship. The impact of friendship. Look at verse 3. Then they came to him bringing a paralytic who was carried by four men. So we've encountered Christ We've already run into the crowd, and now we see the third and the fourth characters in this study, the companions, the friends, and the paralyzed man or the crippled man. Four faithful friends who want to see their friend healed and one man who desperately wants to walk again. And verse 4 says, and when they could not come near him because of the crowd, they uncovered the roof where he was. So when they had broken through, they let down the bed on which the paralytic was lying. Now, this is a power-packed little verse. 
you can just kind of gloss over it if you're not careful, but this is some crazy stuff. You see, the room is so packed that the crowd won't let them in and can't let them in. And so they carry their friend around the side of the house. And most of the house in that day had a staircase that went up the side of the house. Because in the evenings, you would want to spend time up there on the roof. Because it was a lot cooler in those days on the rooftop. By the way, I say roof and you say roof. And I'm sorry if I mess you up. But I know I should say roof. That's the correct pronunciation. I'm trying my best to say roof. So they carried him up to the rooftop. (laughs) I got in a big debate with Adam about this yesterday. But uh, they carry him to the rooftop. Now, you have to understand that these rooftops were not just, you know, a simple tile. The the book of Luke says they removed a tile, and and that sounds simple, but it wasn't. Sometimes these roofs were a foot thick, full of uh, beams and and sticks over top of the beams, and, and then a combination of mud and mortar and ash and tar and all kinds of stuff that they would combine together, and then they would roll it and it would harden, and sometimes they would do it several times, and so by the time you get finished building this house, that rooftop can be a foot thick. Now, can you just imagine what's going on here? While Jesus is teaching, these guys are up above his head, pounding this roof. Maybe they had a stick or uh, some sort of a hammer or whatever, but I mean, debris got to be falling on Jesus' head. There's got to be all kinds of noise going on, and on top of that, it's Peter's house that they're in, and Peter never kept his mouth shut, so you can just imagine he's probably going, what on earth are you doing? And then on top of that, we learn in Mark chapter 1, his mother-in-law with them. Now, there is no wrath like the wrath of a mother-in-law. So you can just imagine what's going on with all the chaos. But you have to just admire the desperation and the determination that these friends have to get their friend to Jesus. It sort of begs the question, to what measure will we go to to bring our friends to Jesus? Now, this is the ultimate life group activity. You know, we place a high emphasis on life groups in this church. And the reason is because look around. It's a big room. It's a big place. There's lots of church members at Thomas Road, and it's easy to just become another person in the crowd. So we need fellowship. We need community. We need to be in a life group. And one of the greatest things a life group can do is that it affords you an opportunity to bring others to Christ. And that's exactly what's happening here. Uh, Incidentally, have you ever read or heard the story of the the Danish Jews that were uh, during World War II? This is an amazing story. I was reading about this this week, and I had to include it in this message. You see, Hitler, during World War II, had, had, uh, with his Nazi regime, had taken over the nation of Denmark in, in 1940. But then by 1943, what had happened is, is that they had uh, established firm control in Denmark, and so now it was time for, for Hitler to do what he had done in all the other countries and round up all the Jewish people so he could exterminate them. He wanted to kill them all. And so he wants to round up all the Jews in Denmark and place them in a concentration camp in central Germany. Well, there was only 7,500 Jewish people in Denmark, only 7,500. And on September 29th, 1943, just 48 hours before all the Jews were to be rounded up and shipped to this concentration camp, the entire country of Denmark came to their aid. 
And by that, I mean all the Jews were hidden. They were given safe passage to Sweden. They were smuggled across the border. They were taken away to remote locations. They were put in disguises. Doctors, farmers, lawyers, teachers, business people, the police force, everyday folks, all the way up to the king of Denmark. Everybody came together to rescue these Jewish people in Denmark because they determined we will not let our neighbors be taken by the Nazis. And do you know that in just two days' time, they went from 7,500 Jews that could easily be found to only 481 Jewish people that the Nazis were able to find and deliver to the concentration camp. But it didn't stop there. Do you know that the nation of Denmark, all the way up to the top of the government, continued to care for those 481 people in that concentration camp by smuggling 700 care packages into that concentration care a month full of medicine and food and clothing. And by the time you get to the end of World World War II, Out of 7,500 Jewish people in Denmark, do you realize that only less than 100 of those 7,500 Danish Jews lost their lives to the Nazis and the Nazi evil of World War II? And it's all because the citizens of Denmark got intentional about saving their neighbors. Now, how much more intentional should we be about bringing our friends to Christ I mean, he's the only one who can save anybody for eternity. We have hope in our hearts that is worth sharing. So how intentional should we be about bringing our friends to Jesus, at least as intentional as these four men with their friend? The impact of friendship. Now let's look here at the result of faith. Verse 5, when Jesus saw their faith, Whose faith? Well, the faith of the four companions, yes, but I also believe the faith of the crippled man. All five of them came to Jesus with a humble and a true faith. And I mean, if anybody needed a touch from Jesus, it was this guy, right? But do any of these guys really know that Jesus can heal him? I mean, not really. They can't prove it. It's going to require faith. Now, it requires faith to do just about anything. It requires faith to eat the food in your, in your kitchen because it may poison you. It took faith for you to drive your car into work or, or into church today. It takes faith to ride on the plane that I was on yesterday. It takes faith to even sit on the chair that you're sitting on. If you've never sat in it before, you have to believe. So you can wholeheartedly believe in something, but it can be the wrong thing. Like Hitler, he believed wholeheartedly in his cause, but it was the wrong cause. So it's not necessarily the strength of your faith or the perfection of your faith as much as it is the object of your faith that matters. Faith in Jesus is the one thing that pleases Jesus the most. So what kind of faith does Jesus see in you, in me? Is it bold like these four men? Is it daring I want you to remember today that our faith is not just having a knowledge about Jesus, but faith means actively putting your trust in Jesus. You see, faith requires action. And what impresses Jesus about these four men is the extent which they actively display their faith in him. Oh, but then he responds in, a, in an unexpected way. Look at verse 5. He said to the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven you. Hmm. This is a significant moment, but rather unexpected, isn't it? I mean, everybody in the room is expecting Jesus to say, hey, you're healed. 
because they're looking at his physical condition, but what they don't see is his spiritual condition. So thirdly, I want you to see the power of forgiveness. Let me ask you something. Did you ever receive a Christmas present that you didn't really want, but that you actually needed? I remember my first Christmas with my wife, Shay. My parents decided they wouldn't give me a present and they wouldn't give her a present. Instead, they were gonna get one present for both of us, a bread maker. I was so excited. And then I remember Jonathan, sorry, Jonathan, I, I hate to throw you under the bus here, but one year for the, because his anniversary is this week, one year Jonathan gave Sherry a trash compactor for their anniversary. And I, I think that's probably ranks as the number one most romantic gift in all of history right there. But, you know, but, but hey, she may not have wanted it, but, but they needed it. They needed a, a trash compactor. And, and that's what happens here. The crippled man has, has come to Jesus wanting to be healed, but instead Jesus gives him what he really needs. Jesus knows that healing his body has only a, a temporal consequence, but healing his soul, oh no, that's for eternity. So Jesus gives him grace and he forgives him of his sins. Now all, uh, all the people in this room are witnessing this, but I think when we look at this moment, we don't need to underestimate the power of the moment. I mean, this is the greatest miracle of all. I, I hope you realize that when we watch that baptism and when we hear the testimonies of what happens in the Elam home and when we see people come down this aisle in worship services or, or we see all these kids that give their heart to Christ during VBS and all the different ministries of this church, do you realize you are a witness, you are a front row seat witness to the greatest miracle of all? All of heaven rejoices because another soul has been snatched from the claws of the evil one. And we have this privilege of just watching and seeing the whole thing. It's the miracle of grace. But many times, our reaction is just like this crowd right here in Mark chapter two. The, the crowd says nothing. They're silent. Oh, but there is a group that's noticing. Verse six, and some of the scribes were sitting there and reasoning in their heart. Why does this man speak blasphemies like this. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Well, now, these guys are the final characters we encounter in this story. So we've encountered the Christ. We've encountered the crowd. We've encountered the companions. We've encountered the cripple. And now we encounter the critics. You see what I did there? A good old Baptist alliteration for all of you. <laughs> and by the way, anytime Jesus is in the house, there's always going to be critics unbelievers who doubt his authority and his word and or legalists who determine they know better than God. I mean, I'm sure there's critics in this room right now. So let's just talk about these scribes and Pharisees for a moment. This was the religious leaders of the day. These guys worked really hard and they were incredibly disciplined in following all 613 laws of the Torah, the laws that were given to Moses by God. And these are the ones that everybody in the room looks up to. In fact, they've got a front row seat to hear Jesus. In fact, they're the only people in the room that are sitting. They're taking them extra space, but that's okay because they have a, a place of prominence in society. These were not bad guys. Sometimes we look at scribes and Pharisees as though they're the bad guys. These were good guys. And since Jesus has taught in the synagogue for the first time, they, they've been following him. They've been examining everything he does and everything he says. 
And in this instance, what happens is, is Jesus forgives this man's sin, thereby doing something that only God can do. And according to Jewish law, according to God's law, sin could only be dealt with by a sacrifice of an animal at the temple in the presence of the priest. But here's the difference. What they don't see, what they don't understand, was that Jesus is both the temple and the high priest and ultimately would be the sacrifice. So these scribes, they, they have correct theology. No one can forgive people's sins but God alone. But what they didn't realize is that they were standing in front of God alone. They knew the written word, but they didn't know the living word. Now, before we're too hard on these guys, let's just consider for a moment, if you were in that room, would you have believed? I ask myself this all the time. If I'm in, the, if I'm in that day and age, would I have believed in Jesus? Do you know it's entirely impossible for you to go to church every week of your life and still not know God? Maybe that's you today. You've got all the rules of your religion down pat, but you don't have a relationship with Jesus. Or maybe you do have a relationship with Jesus, but you live intentionally sheltered from the culture. Well, folks, in order to reach the community, we have to understand our culture, not ignore it. And in order to bring our friends to Jesus, we have to get around some folks at some point who don't know Jesus. So we have to envelop ourselves into our culture so that we can impact our culture. And if we live behind the walls of the church too long, then we run the risk of developing this attitude um, that our sins aren't quite as bad as their sins. In other words, we get a little bit like the scribes and the Pharisees. Uh, those are the bad sinners. You know, those are the people that drink and chew and go out with the people that do and all that stuff. And we're the good sinners. All we do is lie and slander and murmur and gossip. <laughs> but the truth is, we're all sinners. And ultimately, we need the same thing. We need the miracle of forgiveness. Maybe I can illustrate it this way. How many of you fly a lot? How many of you fly commercial fairly often? Anybody, any of you take a lot of flights here and there to get to work? Well, we're blessed here in Lynchburg. To, uh, to have a lot of choices on airlines. I mean, you can fly, you can fly American or American. <laughs> and then there's also the choice of going either to Charlotte or to Charlotte. In fact, I think that if you die, you go to Charlotte and then the Lord takes you from there to... <laughs> I'm just kidding. That, that's horrible theology. <laughs> that was a totally joke. If somebody believes that, I'm so sorry. Please don't send me a letter. But I fly a lot, you know, and, and I, I fly to all these places and sing and all this stuff, and it's a, and it's a really fun, fun thing that I get to do. But because I fly a lot, you know, after so many times of flying, you begin to develop some status on the airline, and you begin to accrue miles. And so the more you fly, the more status you have with the airline. Well, it's fun to be able to fly at a Lynchburg because, you know, you only fly on American, and so you start to gain status on American pretty quickly. And because of that, and because of all the flying I've done, what happens is you get to a certain point after all your flying that they'll actually automatically put you on what's called an upgrade list. And that means that you have the chance of getting upgraded to first class. 
And that is quite the privilege. If you've ever sat in first class on an airplane, you know that it's way different than sitting in the back section of the airplane. And so I always end up getting on this upgrade list, but I never happen to actually get upgraded. I'm just on the list. So I see my name on the list and I get all hopeful and then they never call my name. And then every once in a while, every once in a while, they call my name to the counter. And I walk proudly up to the counter and I take that little boarding pass and I double check, make sure my name's on there and sure it is. And I remember all those moments because I proudly take my seat in first class. And then as people are boarding behind me, I look upon them with great pity. (laughs) And I think, oh, bless your heart. But what's funny is most of the time I end up in coach. And so we board after the first class section. And as we're walking past all the people in first class, I look at them with great disdain. And I think, you know, if you would just hadn't have made this flight, I could be sitting in your seat. So what's funny is that between first class and coach class, the only thing that separates us is this little tiny curtain. And when they close the curtain, you can still see everything that's happening in first class. And you can even hear everything that's happening. You you know, the flight attendant, Mr. Johnson, hello, we're having filet mignon today for lunch with a little lobster tail. If you'd like to join us. And I just feel like she's going to just whip open that curtain any time ago. Now, the rest of y'all are going to get lukewarm water and cardboard crackers. So just hang on. All right. I'm just kidding. It's not that way. They're actually very nice and very kind. But what I've noticed is that my attitude is completely determined by which side of the veil I'm sitting on. Now, just like first class and coach class on an airplane, there was a veil that separated where everyone could go in the temple and where only the high priest could go into the presence of the Lord. And that veil was 60 feet long and 30 feet tall and four inches thick. And it was so heavy, it required 300 priests to lift it. And it was suspended in the temple between the inner court and the Holy of Holies. But at the moment Christ gave up himself on the cross, that veil was torn from top to bottom. And only God could tear that veil. And when that veil was torn, God was saying to you and me, now you can. Now all of you can receive the free grace and the forgiveness of your sin. And it's not just for the religious. It's for everybody. The down and out, the lost, the forgotten, the lonely, the desperate, the defeated, the dying and the crippled. You see, the barrier's been removed, and it's in Christ alone that we are saved. Why? Because he's the only one who paid for those sins in full. Our sin was a barrier between us and God, but the death, burial, resurrection of Jesus, he became the bridge that takes us over that barrier. So now we have an eternal home in heaven because Jesus called our name. So we have no business looking down on those who don't know Christ with our bifocals of religious piety. Instead, maybe when it comes to church, we should all think more along the lines of Southwest Airlines, where there is no first-class section. You see, we're all in this together. And the only thing that separates us from them is the unearned, undeserved, wonderful, matchless grace of God. That's it. So we can rejoice today and be thankful for his grace. Verse 8, but immediately when Jesus perceived in his spirit that they reasoned thus within themselves, 
he said to them, why do you reason about these things in your heart? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven you, or to say, arise, take up your bed and walk. What Jesus is essentially forcing them to do is to consider what they believe about him. Is he God or is he not? And Jesus is essentially saying, look, you accuse me of blasphemy because I forgave his sins and you want to see the evidence that I do in fact possess this power. See, forgiving his sins is an intangible thing. You cannot see that. And yet to heal him physically is a tangible thing. You can see that. So just to prove to you that I can do the impossible that you cannot see, I'm going to do the impossible that you can see. Verse 10, but that you may know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, arise, take up your bed and go to your house. Verse 12, and immediately he arose, took up the bed, went out in the presence of them all, so that all were amazed and glorified, saying, we've never seen anything like this. Oh, folks, when Jesus is in the house... Worship is the result. So what does all this have to do with us 2,000 years later? Well, there's a few things I want you to remember, and then we'll bring it to a close. First of all, I want you to remember that the impact your friendship can have on another uh, can do great things for the kingdom of God. The second thing I want you to remember is that the result of a bold and daring faith can mean life change for one of your friends. And thirdly, I want you to remember that the power of forgiveness lies in the hands of Christ alone. He's the only one who can save you. So as I close, I want to ask you today, who are you in this story? Who are you? I mean, I suppose over the course of lifetime, we all play every one of these roles at some point, except, of course, the role of Christ. But right now, in this moment, on this day, who are you in this story? Are you one of the critics? Maybe you're a critic in the sense that you don't even know if you believe in Jesus, that he can forgive you and save you. Or maybe you do know Christ, but you've developed a critical spirit. If you're constantly in a state of criticizing what goes on in this church or in your community or in your home, let me encourage you to do three things. I want you to do what Jesus told this man to do. First of all, arise. And by that, I mean say less and serve more. Let the love of Jesus overtake your desire to mold everything to your liking and fill you with a desire to minister instead. And then take up your bed. And by that, I mean get involved, perhaps in the very area in which you've been so critical. You might discover that you can be of much more help solving the problem rather than complaining about it. And then go. Perhaps you need to go to those you've been most critical of behind their back and genuinely ask for their forgiveness, and then set off on a new path of service and love and kindness. So are you one of the critics, or maybe you're part of the crowd? You know, the crowd, this whole story just sort of stands idly by. They're blocking the way for others to come to Christ. Maybe not intentionally, but there's just an indifference to their spirit. You, maybe you come to church because it seems like the right thing to do, but you're certainly not going to get crazy with all this Jesus stuff. You have other priorities, and you're much more comfortable just as a casual observer. So you tip the Lord with your money, and you 
tip the Lord with your time and you become part of the 80% of the people that give 20% of the money and do 20% of the work. You're just a casual observer. And here's the problem with the crowd. They just never make much of a difference. They merely observe and then they walk away. And they miss out on being part of the miracle. It's almost like they forget that Jesus is actually in the house. So are you part of the crowd? If you are, then I want to ask you to arise. Jump in, dive deep, get involved. You will never regret wholeheartedly following after Christ. And then take up your bed. One guy I read, he said, you know, you know why Jesus said take up your bed? Because it was in the way. In other words, get, get the stuff that's hindering you from really living for Jesus. Get it out of your life. Maybe it just means one more hour a week in a life group. Maybe one less hour at the office. Whatever it is, get off your mat and discover the adventure of serving Jesus. And then, and then go, maybe literally, to a house to be a part of a life group. Maybe you need to jump in and start a life group. Maybe it's time to join a Bible study and start serving in the nursery or join the choir or help the homeless or whatever it is that God wants you to do. Whatever it is, go. And like Jonathan said last week, get in the game. Just get in the game. So are you a critic? Are, are you part of the crowd? Or maybe you're one of the companions and you're living for Christ and you're doing all that you can do and you're, and you're really a disciple. You're, remember, the crowd is not the same thing as being a disciple. Crowds are passive, but disciples are active. Crowds watch while disciples work. And crowds are, are fickle, but disciples are, are faithful. So if you're doing what you can do to live for Christ, I applaud you, but I encourage you to arise. You're doing well, but Satan will do all he can to bring you down. So stay accountable to your brothers and sisters in Christ. Stay bold as a lion and gentle as a dove and don't get distracted by pettiness. And also take up your mat. Continue to remove what's in the way. Don't allow apathy to set in. Don't allow murmuring or gossip to get in your way. You're doing great things, but God might be able to even use you in greater Ways. So keep on pressing towards the mark of the high calling of Christ. And, and also go. And by that mean, I just mean finish strong. Don't arrive safely at the doors of death. Just keep up the adventure and stay humble, stay ready, and stay the course. So are you one of the companions? Are you one of the critics? Are you one of the crowd? Or maybe you're one of the crippled. Maybe today you just feel paralyzed. And you're not paralyzed physically but instead you're paralyzed by sin. You know, sin has a crippling effect on everyone. Sin costs us way more than we ever expected to pay, and ultimately it leads to our destruction and our death. And maybe you're sitting here today and you feel like you're just crippled by the weight of sin in your life. And if that's you, I want to remind you that there is forgiveness in Christ. Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So how do we receive that gift? Well, by doing what these men did, by putting your faith in Jesus. He's the only one who can save you. He's the only one who can give you life. Romans 5.8 says, but God demonstrated his love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So do you feel lost? Do you feel hopeless? Is there an emptiness in your soul that you don't know how to fill? Then come to Jesus. 
arise. And I mean literally arise in just a moment and come down this aisle and come to Jesus. Humble your heart in the presence of him and just ask him to save you. We'll have pastors down here at the front and I just wanna ask you to come down. Arise from where you're sitting and come and take one of these men by the hand and simply say, I wanna meet Jesus. And then take up your bed. And by that I mean just once Christ comes into your life, let him remove all the barriers that there are to just serving him. He'll help you throw away the addictions. He'll throw away the pain of the past. He'll take that old sin of your life and throw it as far as the east is from the west. And he will make you a new creation. And then finally just go. Surrender to Christ. Let him give you a new life. And you can walk out of here and go home just like this man did with a new lease on life, a new creation, a new heart, and only Jesus can do that for you. And I want to say also this too, because Jesus didn't just forgive this man of sins, he also healed this man. And I have to tell you, Cade, son, we're praying for your healing. We believe God can heal you, and we still believe God is in the business of healing souls. He's in the business of saving souls. So wherever you are in this room, if you are one of the critics, then maybe you should stand and come down to this aisle and get your life right with Christ. Maybe you're one of the companions and you just want to come down here and pray for one of your friends. Maybe you're one of the crowd and you've just been sitting there idly by for years and you've done nothing for the cause of Christ. You're just standing there watching everybody else do it. Let God break you. Come down to this altar and just get things right with him and you can leave here fully active, fully bought in, diving deep for the cause of Christ. And lastly, if you're one of those crippled, Oh, don't leave here today without knowing Christ. Don't leave here today with an emptiness still in your soul. I'm going to ask you to stand right now, and we're going to begin to sing this little song that reminds us that, you know what? What Jesus did 2,000 years ago, Jesus is still do today. He can still do it, and he's willing to do it again. So while we sing, I just want to open this altar and ask you, come on down. Let's get things right with Christ tonight, all right? Come on, let's sing it together, guys. Here we go. We want to take this opportunity to thank you for joining us here today. You know, at Thomas Road Baptist Church, since our very beginning, back in 1956, we've been about one thing and one thing only, and that is to bring the message of hope that comes through Jesus Christ to the world. And today, my friends, we recognize we live in a world that's messed up. We live in a world that's full of division and conflict and pain and sorrow. But Jesus came to this world not to bring division and sorrow, but to bring joy, to bring peace to bring hope. And today, that's the message that we want to share with you. And if you're watching this and you've never had the opportunity of of connecting with him at that level, of understanding what it is that Jesus came to do, then I encourage you and I want to let you know the greatest news you'll ever hear. And that's this, God loves you. He loves you with an everlasting love. In fact, he gave his only son, Jesus, to come to this earth, to die on the cross, to pay for your sins and for my sins, to do for us what we never could do for ourselves. What an amazing gift that really is. God loves you. Christ died for you. But three days later, he rose again. And when he came out of that grave, he gives us victory over sin, over Satan, over the grave. He gives us the hope for eternity. But according to God's word, it's very clear. What we must do is believe. We must believe that Jesus is the son of God. We must believe that he died and that he rose again. And if we do that, according to Romans 10, 13, anyone, that means you, it means me, it means every person that has ever lived, anyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. 
And so I encourage you today to recognize that hope that comes through Jesus. And if you've never trusted him as your Lord and Savior, do so today. Believing that he is who he said he is, that he did what he said that he did, calling on his name, and it'll change everything. That is the message that we share. It's a message that we want to take to the entire world. And today I would encourage you to connect with us, maybe even financially through a gift that you can help us to take this message around the world. I encourage you today to stand with us as we stand with truth, as we stand with hope to let the world know God loves. 